This week's episode of Screen Talk is brought to you by To The Bone, written and directed by Marty Knoxon, starring Lily Collins, Alex Sharp, Keanu Reeves, Carrie Preston, and Lily Taylor. To The Bone follows Ellen, an unruly 20-year-old battling anorexia and nervosa, and her journey in discovering how to confront her illness and attempt self-acceptance. Vanity Fair calls it engaging, funny, and humane, and The Verge raves Lily Collins gives a thoroughly amazing performance. To The Bone, now streaming on Netflix. Welcome to Screen Talk, IndieWire's weekly podcast. I'm Eric Cohen, the Deputy Editor and Chief Critic, joined as always by Ann Thompson, our Editor-at-Large out in Los Angeles. And Anne, we do have an awards hook this week, but it's not the usual one, because out, out in LA, you guys had to get up super early, not It wasn't late. that bad. 8.30 <laughs> is for wimps. Not, you know? yeah, exactly. not as bad as 5.30 is for, you know, the tough ones. For the hardcore types. Yeah, yeah exactly. And uh, here come the Emmy nominations. So the Emmys, I, I find this a really interesting narrative to follow because what's happened clearly in the past couple of years is that the Emmys race really gets going when the Oscar race winds down. So you're in award season all year round, but there are two different kinds of award seasons with some overlap, right? They're sort of, they're speaking to each other, but there's some different players and there's certainly a lot more uh, content being considered for the Emmys. So there's a lot to take in all at once. It's unbelievable how many, there's like 700 shows that the uh, voters had to, on some level. Yeah, you and know, they, I'm sure parts. they all watched off it's 700. So, and so, so it, it does become, and there's 20,000 of them as opposed to 7,000 Oscar voters. And I find that personally just in terms of just trying to get some sense of what's going over well, aside from looking at Gold Derby to see what my fellow pundits think. Right. You know, how do you measure? How do you track? You know, well, so. Well, you have to look at the marketing campaigns, right? I mean, that's sort of well, that has a lot to do with it, and um, HBO did very well with like 111 nominations, followed by Netflix, which also did very well up in the 90s. And and I think that um, it was great to see Hulu come out with Handmaid's Tale, which yes. is one of the, I would say Handmaid's Tale and um, Night of are, are both sort of examples of very cinematic television programs that feel like in some other world they could have been movies but they they became longer and more elaborate in, I, I in really, played I mean, out it's interesting I, I watched handmaid's tale pretty quickly just a couple of weeks ago and i was impressed by i mean it, it's not a perfect show but it creates a really absorbing world and yes it, it only could have been made as a tv show in the last couple of years when, right really i mean the, the movie was already there was a movie made a while ago. that's right exactly but from the atwood uh, book yeah. but it's also reed morano who's as we know is an independent filmmaker and also a very uh, adept cinematographer shot the first three episodes and so she got nominated and so did this woman um Kate uh, Dennis. So, so there's several women directors on that show, which, yeah, which made me happy. I mean, yeah. it's, you've got to avoid the male gaze in a show that involves a lot of rape. But uh, it's also kind of cool because Hulu has clearly struggled to be known for original series. This is a big way. breakout yeah, for that's them. It's a big deal. And it's cool because that is a tough show, at least conceptually. I mean, I was very engaged with it. It's thrilling and suspenseful. But when you think about what it's about, this dystopian world that doesn't feel too dissimilar to our own in terms of, you know, the kind of fundamentalism that drives this Things cult. went very yes, wrong. Yes, exactly. <laughs> but the idea of all these people fleeing to Canada to get away from the crazy people running the United States is not so far removed from our current reality. Indeed. You know? So, what it's, a, it's a hard sell in the fact that Hulu made it happen. I mean, that's 
they took a risk on that show and they got some really amazing talent both behind and in front of the camera. So I think it's, it, that to me is a real confirmation of, you know, what TV can do now if you're willing to take a risk in a way that I think in the independent film world, you know, acquisitions people and producers are very accustomed to. So that, that, the, those narratives are very similar in certain ways. Yeah, um, well, it's nice to see Steve Zalian and, and Richard Price do so well with The Night Of and, and you know, uh, Riz Ahmed, you know, becomes uh, one of the lead actor contenders and, and uh, John Turturro and, and, and Bill Camp. I, I actually predicted Bill Camp, even though he was like way down there in the odds. So I'm very pleased with that. Well, I'm really excited about Atlanta. I love that show. And what I think is so cool about Atlanta is that Donald Glover, I mean, that first season is like his first feature film, really. He'd made a short film or a few before and uh, clearly some of his sensibilities came through in his stand-up. But it's just such a weird, surreal piece of storytelling in every and episode. And he, he got, different. it's wonderful. He got rewarded for writing, directing, and starring, which is pretty amazing. Yeah, I mean, it's a little bit like what happened with Masters of None last year. I mean, that, that show, I think, is a little bit more familiar in certain ways, although it's, it's very uh, sturdy and, and incredibly well done. But Atlanta, it's just... It's so ambitious. I mean, there's one episode that's like this embellished Charlie Rose show that does a better job of dealing with race than most things that are overtly about race because it's so strange and surreal and it's funny in ways that are completely unexpected. I've talked to TV directors who've been working in TV, I was talking to one in particular, for a long time. And he was saying, he watched that show and he was like, how the hell did this guy get away with making this thing? And you realize it's, well, the network is willing to take a risk on this young talent. It's not an especially costly show. And uh, it speaks to an underrepresented demo on some level. And so I think there's many things that work in this show's favor. And I bet you the next season's gonna be even on another level because this is a young creative guy who's just starting to get going. And I thought it was funny watching Spider-Man and he's got this bit part. You know, and I'm thinking a year from now, I'd be shocked if he was doing that kind of stuff. He's just on a completely other level now. Well, on the, the on the diversity front, clearly, you know, there's this is not news. The uh, television uh, world is able to take bigger risks and reach out to a much broader demographic. And sure enough, across uh, the different uh, major acting categories, there were like 16 people of color, you know, nominated, which is pretty amazing. Well, we and the Tonys too, right? I mean, this is like, it's, it's less about, to me, the way that diversity can thrive on networks so much as it is, in, by contrast, in the film industry, it's, there's still a long way to go. You know, they, they just so, they're making progress. Moonlight won. You know, yeah. there was definite progress last year. They're inviting a lot more people. They're trying to change their demographics, but it's going to take a long time. Yeah. But, but they're also, I mean, this is their argument that they that they are, in fact, reflecting the limited uh, progress. But you know what I was, I was actually noting? Um, Spider-Man has a very, very diverse cast, and John Watts went out of his way to make that happen. The same thing happened with Star, Star Wars Forks, Force Awakens. And and the there are strides being made on, with you know Marvel and Lucasfilm and some of the big companies to try you know we already had the Fast and Furious franchise of course which is a the poster child for what can happen with a great diverse cast with global box office. Well, look when you have a big studio that's in charge of telling a story on a massive scale to the most amount of people possible to the point where studios are creating you know diversity divisions and everybody I mean at a certain point you're gonna have to start seeing that the awareness is there the question is our individual 
filmmakers geared towards that kind of sensibility as much as you know the infrastructure itself. You know, is the diversity in the storytelling, or is it in the kind of bit parts? I mean, at the end of the day, Spider-Man is still about this white boy from Queens. So, you but know. He's, if you look at that picture of him with the classmates, everybody else is a person of That's color, true. In, except in, him, including some major characters that I won't spoil yeah. too much who, who could come back yeah. in the next one. So. <laughs> <laughs> and then, of course, next year we'll have Black Panther, and that's going to be a big yeah. Deal, so. That's another Marvel one, and uh, God forbid uh, we have some women superheroes as well uh, after Wonder Woman. You know, maybe the floodgates are going to open, and there's going to be some change. We can always hope. This brings me to another story that just broke earlier this week and I think is worth digging into a bit, which is Quentin Tarantino supposedly doing this uh, Manson Murders movie. Now that, talk about a guy who struggled with the diversity conversation, right? I mean, he had no apologies for using the N-word in his movies to the point where even Spike Lee like, made fun of him in, in one of his own movies. And this has been sort of chasing him for 20 years in the conversation. But he's always had incredible people, you know, in his movies playing around with, yeah, he, from he Django an Unchained and Samuel L. Jackson, yeah. and, you know, he t he's, he, he's fearless in this Jamie regard. Fox and all that stuff. Yeah, I mean, there, there are people who I think will go to the mat for Tarantino and other people who don't even know where to start. And it's just, I mean, the Manson thing, clearly, as, as you said in your piece, this story was not supposed to get out there yet, but that is a, a tough one to unpack because you start to wonder, okay, so who, who is really going to be the protagonist of this movie? And how is he going to represent the era and the people and the way that they talk? I mean, they, if they sound like Tarantino characters, somebody's going to have a problem with it. You know? It's very interesting because um, while, while obviously the Inglorious Bastards included some people from history like Goebbels and so on, it, it's still going to be the first time that he's really, uh, you know, he, he's, his pieces are all character and dialogue driven, as you, as yeah. you, and, and we know what his dialogue sounds like, as you say. So this is going to be an interesting stretch because we have to assume that he has a take. He has come up with some outrageous reason Scribbled to do this. Scribbled by hand on, you know, you know on white pages. paper. Yeah, yeah. he's <laughs> going to do uh, something. You know, that, that, that's the thing. That's what's so great about him. We can't predict. We can't figure it out without reading it. We don't know, and it's going to be unexpected. Is the one thing I can say, and well, I'm excited has, to see what he does with it because he only has a couple movies left in his ten movie. Wow. You know, right. trajectory, I'm assuming totally that that's convinced. what he ends up doing. I, he seems like the kind of guy who just, like, he could take a 10-year break. I mean, he started so young. He's gotten to that point where he has the luxury to slow down a bit. But, uh, but he like, puts a lot of pressure on himself, you know. Yeah. And when and when you know when things you know he's trying to achieve greatness, which uh, for better or for worse, and I, I and I, I applaud him for that. Although I would say he has never achieved greatness in my estimation, but more completely than Pulp Fiction. To me, Pulp Fiction is, is a near flawless epitomization of what's great about Tarantino's writing. Everything he's done in the last, say, 15 years, I've, I've enjoyed in different kinds of ways, but there's something about his use of high style that I feel a lot of times eclipses how great he is with dialogue. The best part to me of The Hateful Eight wasn't so much the shootouts and all that, all the crazy violence, so much as like that insane Samuel Jackson monologue. 
But there's also the idea that in some weird way, although as cinematic as he is, that movie where you've put all these people into a powder keg, one room, claustrophobic situation, it's theater. And he actually told me he would be interested in making that into a theater piece. It started with that reading, as you may recall. And and I'm curious, um, you know, this this movie, though, presents, uh, the Manson murders, presents a whole wide range of possibilities. Well, yeah, also, in, a, in, a, in an expansive Los Angeles universe. That's true, I mean, but also if you look at it as sort of uh, connected in some way or sharing some DNA by, you assume it could share some DNA with this late period Tarantino work in which there's an element of American history or embellished American history. Exactly, right? exactly. He was obsessed with the 70s. The actual murders were 1969, the trial was 1971, but I, it, I, think he, I think some of that research that he was doing into the 70s could well end up in this movie if he has some style, some kind of, you know, all his movies have some elements of picking up other people's styles and right. making them his own. But the great surprise of Inglourious Bastards and I'm sorry to spoil it for people who still haven't seen that movie. It's one of the great movies he's made. Well, it's one of the more entertaining movies he, he's made uh, is that he fucks with history. He's just like, oh, you thought that this was, you know, there's no way that I can well, go this direction. Well, that was allowed because it's an alternative version of history well, exactly. in a way. I mean, they you know, are. he's positing what if they did this. It's well, almost like a Philip Roth suggestion, I, I you know, what if they, what if all, they did this? I yeah. Mean, the, you know, the... The idea of fan that some like Reddit forums or whatever have that that all these movies exist in one universe. It's like, of course they do. They exist. They come from his mind. But that's like. <laughs> but what's interesting is that Manson. You know, the terrible thing about that story is that this is a guy who's not even rotting in a jail cell. He's had an active life as a prisoner for decades, and so it makes you wonder if Tarantino takes control of this story and anything can happen because truly anything can. What's he gonna do? Is it? Are we gonna come to the present? That's what I can't you know? wait. I cannot wait to. Th- Exact. Well, that's possible too. Absolutely. Yeah. Roman I have Polanski no idea what it, gets We don't revenge, know what his entry you know? point is. We maybe, have no idea. Maybe Sharon Tate gets to live. You know, I mean, it's he. He's a subversive. He can do anything. Right, and also I think, from what I can discern of, and I don't really know the guy, but. He seems very sensitive to perceptions, and if oh, things yeah. don't go well or don't go exactly the way he wants them to, that seems to have a very immediate reaction. So it's like, is he going to try to win people over who weren't totally on board with the last movie, for example, which didn't, you know, it won one Oscar for the score, but it wasn't, a, it wasn't one of his treasured movies no, you know no. there's something there was something there that didn't quite click with people and it's That's like true. He, he's uncompromising it was but also very violent fans. and very yeah. much of a western which yeah. are all limitations in yeah. our world and so we see bob and harvey weinstein signed on here presumably this would be some kind of a deal between weinstein company and universal which is the way it worked on the last one no, no was, they're looking for a partner yeah. they, they can decide which partner to go with. But, the, but it is an interesting question about how this is going to work out because for the Weinsteins, it's actually kind of a good thing for these guys still to have a Quentin movie in the, in the pipeline, right? I mean, it, in spite, they, they don't have a huge slate right now. Oh, they need so, him. I mean, yeah. he's their, they're his patron, if you like, and they have been for a long time. The Weinsteins are, are, are in a smaller sort of 
tighter universe, paying more attention to TV, not making as many or acquiring as many movies as they used to. But, you know, they've been Tarantino's patron for decades and in a very unusual relationship, you know, that, that he doesn't go to other studios. He doesn't go, you know, he doesn't, he's not a director for hire. He always writes his own projects and directs them. So, I, and he's only adapted one. So we don't know what the source materials are for, for you know, that was Rum Diary became um, Jackie Brown from Elmore, or Elmore Leonard. Uh, we don't know what, what materials he's going to use for this, but they will, they will be his patrons and he need, they need him more than ever to del they, deliver something commercial for them. Supposedly they've got this Michael Moore documentary, the Fahrenheit 9-11 sequel, festering in, in a in an editing room of some sort. So it's it kind of feels like it's the 90s all over again or something with these guys. You know, they, they're clinging to, to the familiar ingredients that, you know, at some, on some level might still work for people. I mean, the, they've got some other fall movies that, that look like they have potential too, like Garth uh, Davis's new movie, uh, Following Up Online, the Mary Magdalene film, things like that. The Current War, obviously. But uh, the the you know none of that all of that stuff is dwarfed by the idea of another Quentin Tarantino. Movie, Absolutely, you know, and I kind of love that. that and I like, don't think they want to give him years and years to 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 wait. I mean, right. they have put a little more pressure on him to get these movies you know on schedule and out you know in a quicker way. So let's switch to to a bigger uh, landscape here because it's actually starting to be a really interesting summer movie season in terms of bigger movies we have. Uh, War of the Planet of the Apes opening this weekend, which we've talked about is, is really satisfying, really accomplished movie. It's, it's Matt Reeves like kind of just showing what he can do on this scale. It's kind of resurrecting a dormant genre, you know, Escape from Alcatraz with monkeys and mocap and all that stuff. And then Spider-Man, which is killing it, very slick, entertaining movie by a young director who seems to have made a successful transition into the studio arena. We always assume that's going to go poorly, and this time it did not. Wonder Woman's still killing it at the box office. Big movies. And, and breaking records. Yeah, big movies are, are kind of working right now in a way that we assume they won't. Not Transformers, thankfully, because it's an awful no, and thing. No, King Arthur didn't do well. And, and, also and awful. Pirates of the Caribbean had to make its money overseas, as we would expect, and, and so forth. But, but yeah, better. there are some people doing it well and doing it right. It's sort of interesting to compare... You know, John Watts, Spider-Man, you know, where this is an example of taking an indie director who did very well with Cop Car and making it work. And, and his voice is loud and clear, just the way, you know, David Lowry's voice was loud and clear um, on on the uh, Pete's Dragon movie. You know, you, you can have that. You can keep that kind of flavor and uh, intelligence, you know, something like uh, Edgar Wright doing a studio movie like, like uh you know the wonderful baby driver these are these are you know idiosyncratic and yet mainstream um as opposed to where the the star wars thing went went awry with with lord and miller that didn't quite work for them so or or the scarface thing we were talking about you know earlier that is who is that going to be an idiosyncratic uh approach to a remake or is it you know with the all these directors leaving david ayer it's just and a bad idea you I know mean, or or is it, it or are they trying to turn it into a uh, a franchise which is with a cookie cutter safe approach somewhere in the middle it works if you go too far one way or the other it doesn't work 
look, at the end of the day, you have a talented filmmaker, you give them enough room to kind of create right. something. Theoretically, you should get something of value. But a lot of times the origination of these properties is, is from people who want to control them more right. than the filmmakers themselves. That is obviously what's going on with Star Wars, for better or worse. And, yeah, they you know, were. I mean, in this case, Indy, you know, with 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 uh, Han Solo, they were protecting yeah, the, the, the character. Of it. Yeah. yeah, whatever. Yeah. But I mean, it, clearly, that was going on with Spider Man on some level too. And uh, you see what's happened now that they kind of Sony outsourced to Marvel. You know, well, Marvel they had to. And, they had and, to, and it's got that polish, but it also. Like uh, John Watts' last film, Cop Car, this is a movie about a young kid who's like messing with this older guy's business and it just so happens to have some snazzy effects in there and stuff, but it's really well assembled and satisfying and it works on many levels. You could basically bring a young kid to this movie and they'd have a good time. Totally. An adult would have like that nostalgic high school movie kind of experience. So it, it, it does those things and the fans who need their Marvel fix get their Marvel fix without you know, some big uh, thing that shakes up the foundation of the series as a whole, you know? It's like the only time you see Captain America, it's for these PSA commercials that he does that in the classroom. Funny. So yeah. it's like you get this sense that they, they create a world, kind of like Handmaid's Tale, right? You create a world, it's a really involving world, but the stakes don't always have to be so ginormous that, you know, in the third act, some big thing's exploding and falling from the sky that threatens all of existence. Nobody's demanding that. I mean, well, this is even if one woman did finally give you that, because yeah, they had the to, weakest part of the movie. and everyone complains, but everybody also recognizes that you can't do one of those big superhero things without something like that in the end. Um, but that was also on a human scale, and I think you have to have human beings interacting with each other, you know, finally for the audience to care. Yeah, and I think it's been an interesting year to see how. Uh, the successful blockbusters are ones that are playing with genre in ways that you wouldn't necessarily assume they would because kind of the big superhero movies are kind of genres unto themselves in a way. But if you look at Logan, you know, it's a Western. Look at Spider-Man. It's like a high school comedy. And then I would argue that Logan movies. was even more of a family drama, of a father-son kind of, uh, and daughter drama. Yeah, it, it, has, was, it has that it, at the root. That's yeah. the emotional foundation yeah. of the movie and so forth. I mean, I don't think it. Any of them are masterpieces per se, and, and they, they are not necessarily my favorite kind of movies anymore, the way they were, say, when I was a kid. But I do think that it's you're seeing somebody reach for a kind of quality by recognizing it in a different kind of filmmaking, and that's that's what's yielding these successes. I, I still think that filmmakers who make movies I really like on a smaller scale, I really don't like the idea of them then just going to make a big movie because I'd rather see them do something original, but if they can survive in that arena, then maybe they'll do some good in the world by making these big movies everybody's going to go see anyway a little bit better. You know, it, and it gives them a little insurance when they want to take risks later on, assuming that they do. One hopes, one hopes that they, they can come back, you know, as David Lowry Well, as Lowry has. did, exactly. Yeah, and he made this beautiful movie, A Ghost beautiful. Story, that's doing pretty well, you know. Yep. So not everybody can pull that off. I'm curious about this. So there's a movie opening this week, which I think we're both pretty keen on, called Lady Macbeth. And that's a film where it's like, this is a very dark, gripping period drama. I don't want that director to go do, you know, a Batman movie or something this like that. This isn't going to happen, <laughs> trust me, because um, a little bit like a ghost story, I think this is safely ensconced 
in the art house arena and it's not going to cross over. It's, it is what it is, but it's, it came out of the fall uh, Toronto Film Festival uh, and people were just raving about this uh, actress Florence Pugh who is playing, you know, a, a venal, I mean, unbelievable character and she's, she's tortured and put upon and and corseted and, you know, treated badly by her husband and his father in, in this rural uh, location. And there's a reason why she's called Lady Macbeth. Yeah. No, it's, it's funny because from a marketing standpoint, it's an interesting challenge because obviously people instinctively think this is a, there's a Shakespeare connection here. And there is, but not explicitly. It's more of it's, a, it's sort of referencing the, the literary character because of the person she evolves into. And it gets Correct. really twisted. I mean, it showed, I went to that horror festival in Oregon, the Overlook, it showed there. It can play as a horror movie for people. It's not because it it goes to these really dark extremes, but at the same time, it's a very elegant period piece about you know what it was like to be a woman in these particular circumstances and what it would take to break out of those restrictions and, and how they can actually lead to insanity. So it's it's right. got like it's like Wuthering Heights is a psychological thriller or something like that. I mean, it's really With a lot more explicit <laughs> yes. uh, sexual content. Sure. Let's put it that way. Sure. There's an element of this movie that it is actually it's hot, you know, but uh, it's also very dark. <laughs> in a in a it, and it's not funny. It's it's dark, dark. Yeah, but you know what? There is it's not funny, but it is it's got a, a kind of black comic sensibility under the surface because yeah. of the, the shock value of it. Yeah. You know, yeah. it's it, it's worth it. I I'm I bet it could do pretty well in limited release because word of mouth could be strong for this kind of film, right? I mean, all, all kinds of different audiences might want to go see it. Older art house audience, a younger audience is sort of curious about, you know, that sees the trailer and thinks it looks kind of cool and different. You know, and it delivers on both levels. So ideally, you know. that would happen. There's also the risk that it would be a tweener in the sense that it's a little too macabre for the uh, older, uh, lavender-haired uh, crowd who are expecting something a little more decorous from their period dramas. Fair. Um, and uh, but I do think if uh, Roadside can get some traction for Florence Pugh, the fact that she's a discovery and it gives a major performance as a young actress might drive. Uh, uh, a little bit of awards talk and, and drive people into the theater. I knew you'd find your way back to Oscars eventually. Can I help <laughs> myself now? Well, so speaking of which, next week I guess we'll finally get a chance to talk about one of the last big anticipated movies of the summer, Dunkirk, the Christopher Nolan movie. Which is, uh, people have started to see it, and we're going to get a chance to, once that embargo lifts, really get into what this movie is. And um, I'm really excited about that because talk about an opportunity to talk about both the big spectacle element and auteur, directors, creative freedom, all that kind of stuff. I mean, Nolan epitomizes that. So I feel like we're going to have a lot of fun digging into that one. And then um, uh, who knows, we'll probably find something else to talk about. I mean, we're, we're heading into the later part of the summer. And uh, as we get into August, we'll get a better impression of what the fall festivals look like and what the really award season is going to be. I mean, at this point, there are all these unknown variables associated with Telluride. Well, we're York, actually so. starting to figure out, as you know, uh, you and I have been digging into it a little bit. We're, we're going to come up with a, a list 
of, of fall festival likely uh, and, and based on reporting and we yeah. won't be speculating exactly the more you ask around you start to hear about things I mean some people really do know even though official lineups haven't been locked yet and some people don't totally know but the more you dig the more you find so we can't say what will be in Telluride we're not allowed to do that but um, we can say what will be at the fall festivals right. and that's that's gonna be fun. we'll come up with a code we'll, we'll, we'll invent the film festival and just talk about the lineup for that thing instead <laughs> <laughs> See how many All right, we talk to you later, way. Eric. Have a good weekend.